Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Age is for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Each episode brings you content on the human side of research, health, well-being, and community. The Issues for Human is sponsored by the Legacy Project of the Office of HIV-AIDS Network Coordination Camp. My name is Pedro Oicochea, and co-hosting this episode with me is Dr. Jeff Schauden, the director of HANC. This first episode of 2022 comes with an exclusive interview with Dr. Carl Diefenbach, the director of the Division of AIDS of the National Institutes of Health. What is the Division of AIDS? Where is AIDS located within the National Institutes of Health? What are the prevention and therapeutic agendas of the HIV AIDS Research Network? How is the COVID-19 pandemic impacting HIV research? What has been the role of the community in COVID-19 research? These and other questions will be addressed during this conversation with Dr. Diefenbach. Jeff? This is Jeff Shouten, the director of Hank, and we're going to be talking with Dr. Carl Diefenbach, the director of the Division of AIDS today. So welcome. And Carl, I wonder if you would start just um, talking a little bit about who the Division of AIDS is, where they sit in the NIH, and what the current structure of the research networks are. Sure, it'll be my pleasure to answer that question. So the Division of AIDS is one of the three or four um, scientific divisions in NIAID. We have the Division of AIDS, the Division of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, the Division of Allergy, Immunology and Transplantation, puts a bunch of intramural um, divisions as well. But we are primarily responsible for all the AIDS research that NIAID funds. Within the NIH, there's also an Office of AIDS Research which has overall an overarching responsibility to help coordinate the AIDS research that goes on within the NIH. And NIAID's budget represents a little more than half of all the AIDS money that comes to NIH. The division is divided into scientific programs. We have a basic sciences program, a therapeutics research program, a vaccine research program, and a prevention sciences program that also has responsibility for maternal and child health and science with pregnant women. So in parallel, we have then an adult therapeutics network, a pediatric therapeutics network, a vaccine prevention network, and a um, non-vaccine HIV prevention network as well. So four networks. Thanks. So we're in the midst of the newest surge in the COVID pandemic with the Omicron variant. and. Um, finishing the second year of this pandemic. What, what challenges has the HIV research enterprise faced in the context of the pandemic? And can talk a little bit how it's affecting sites domestically and internationally. This is in some ways the best of times and the worst of times, because the NIH has really leaned on the HIV uh, research clinical trials networks to get a bunch of things done, as it were, heavily involved in monoclonal antibodies, involved mainly in vaccines, but also in, in therapeutics. Even the PEDS network has become involved in testing drugs like remdesivir in pregnant women. So we've had a huge impact overall on the coronavirus response. That said, many of the sites were closed for a, a long periods of time because their universities were not allowing research to be done. And as they've reopened, it's been uneven in terms of opening. So our HIV research agenda has slowed, particularly in the area of early studies. For example, 
we have prioritized getting the big high value, high dollar HIV vaccine studies completed simply because the, the cost into those was so great and the risk of failure would have been fairly catastrophic. So now it's time to start thinking about reopening and not just uh, the nation, but also the HIV work. And many networks are moving in that direction. That said, there's still ongoing work on the vaccine front. Many of these trials are supposed to last two years. And on the therapeutics work, those are still going full force. So it's been a real challenge. We've seen a tremendous response from the, the sites and the networks in terms of their willingness to step up. And it has been a wonder to watch and be part of our success as we move forward on coronavirus disease. Those, those of us in the HIV research arena really appreciate how much leadership has been provided by the HIV research community and community advocates to the whole COVID research enterprise, both for the vaccines and therapeutic programs. Seems like this is a story that's not well appreciated in the general public, and maybe someone will, will tell the history of this endeavor is so much of HIV translated to the COVID advances. The people who need to know, know this. You know, when Tony called and said, what do you think about leaning on the networks to get work done? And I said, this is what we've worked for. So going back to the first SARS outbreak, could we repurpose it? Could we get work going through the clinical trials network to look at SARS? And there was language in all of our activities that was very HIV centric and HIV focused. So going back, all we could do is some small supplements to Yiming Xiao's site in China to do work in SARS and HIV. And at that point in time, we made a commitment to change everything over so it would be HIV and other infectious diseases. And that was a journey that went about 18 years, where we literally, every time an activity turned over, we rewrote it so that it was intentional so that we could step into this role. Seven years ago, when we renewed the, the networks, we asked the question about, would you be interested in... Uh, partnering with what ultimately became the IDCRC. We asked the same question again. There hasn't been the, the need to add sites for this, but we continue to try to work in an integrated way with DMID and other parts of NIAID to make it so that we are a platform for the highest priority science, including the HIV science. So related to this, the evolution of knowledge around COVID treatment and things, at Hank and in collaboration with our community partners group, several years ago, we developed a training for basic scientific literacy for the HIV advocacy community. And there still seems to be some confusion, misunderstanding around the changing messages over the COVID pandemic. As we've learned new things, information has changed, knowledge has changed. This has created some confusion in the general public. And we, we wonder about changing the literacy module and emphasizing the iterative nature of scientific discovery that actually it doesn't mean that what we thought we knew a year ago now is modified and we know more. So this is a challenge in terms of educating the community on the changing messages around COVID. I agree with you completely. We're literally coming up a week short of two years where we had the first publication, the first breaking news out of Wuhan, China, that there was this disease. And where we have gone in two years is nothing short of breathtaking. But the level of knowledge 
from where we started to where we are today is, is tremendous advances. And there were adjustments along the way with new knowledge, new things uh, emerge. So as scientists, we accept the fact that you have a current state of knowledge and to gain knowledge, you have to change your opinion. Some people view that as a, a sign of failure and it's not. And we've witnessed that in the Senate, for example, that certain senators were questioning certain public officials. Well, you changed your mind on this. And the answer is yes, that's exactly right. We got new information, the, the new data supports this new idea. And somehow that's some sort of a fatal flaw. Anything that Hank can do to educate just on the concept that science is by definition alive and vibrant and growing, it doesn't become history overnight. It really has to, to get codified before it really becomes history. But it's a message, not just to community, it's to basically anybody who's interested in the, the status of the world. So we're looking at revising those basic scientific literacy modules to include, emphasize that really, yeah. that evolving nature of knowledge and scientific well, experimentation. I mean, look at what we're going through in HIV drug development right now. You think we really have it down to uh, a science that it's pretty straightforward and easy to do. And just in the past month, we've seen both Merck and Gilead put their significant new drug programs on hold because they're not quite sure about side effects and toxicities. And how many years are we in? You, you never know until you really put um, these molecules in people for more than a week or two at what kind of side effects you're gonna get. We're fortunate in HIV that we have had the successes we've had with better nucleosides and nucleotides, better drugs, we're now on one pill once a day, fix those combinations using integrase inhibitors. But you know, for a while there, everything was non-nukes and <laughs> protease inhibitors. I don't want to go back to those days. I don't think any of us do. It's interesting seeing ritonavir recycle to a COVID drug now. <laughs> I never thought we would see that, huh? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Once we started down the road of making protease inhibitors for coronavirus disease, it was just a matter of time before we knew we were going to be boosting. Um, I was really relieved when we saw the Pfizer data that there weren't more side effects from the ritonavir. It actually wasn't bad at all. And five days is a lot easier than a lifetime. <laughs> if you go into the catalog of drug-drug interactions, there are 600 listed drug-drug interactions for ritonavir. Lipitor is probably the most relevant to this population of people with SARS-CoV-2. I think for five days, you can afford to either miss a, a dose or two of Lipitor, but it's essential that you take the boost. It, it makes a huge difference in the performance of the drug. So those folks who've been working on HIV vaccines, we're now 40 years into the HIV pandemic and people are amazed what happened with COVID vaccine research. Are there any lessons from the rapidity and development of the COVID vaccines that may translate into the HIV vaccine research efforts ongoing? I, I think there has to be. So in credit to the HIV vaccine research field, we've already had a couple of meetings to talk about revamping the agenda. Because not only do we have the success of the coronavirus vaccines, we have the, the disappointing data from HVTN702 
and the HVTN705, the Imbicoto study that we need to deal with. And in both cases, vaccine concepts fundamentally did not perform. But the, the good thing is the trials were done at a scale that we're confident that these didn't work. And we have to take this into account. So it's not just building on the success, but what are the doors that close as a result of those big trials? At the same time, over the past two years, there's been continued really outstanding work on building better immunogens. Work by you know, Andrew Ward's group at Scripps has showed that if you don't have a really stable immunogen, some of the antibodies that these envelopes induce actually rip the immunogen apart and make it so you make all these other weirdo immune responses. We really need to understand these things and build better immunogens and then work not just toward broad neutralizing antibodies, but also better T cell responses. And I still have a place in my heart for the CMV vector. And hopefully that will show some promise in people as we move um, into uh, phase one studies within this calendar year. But there's a lot to do. I think a lot of people were surprised how efficacious the mRNA vaccines were for COVID. I know there's some early phase one trials going on now looking at HIV constructs using mRNA. Do you think that has much potential in HIV, which is such a different pathogen to immunize against? One thing I can be sure of is that we'll speed up the evaluation of different immunogens. You won't have to purify a protein. You won't have to go through all the toxicities that envelope causes when you try to produce it in, in Cho cell lines. Whether or not you can build within a single strand of messenger RNA all the necessary pieces to build a stabilized envelope, it's going to be a work in progress while we go through some iterations on this. But the great thing about messenger RNA is you change the sequence, you can literally make the template and move quickly into at least preclinical evaluation. It is really a flexible platform. Where it's not flexible is if you needed to make two protein immunogen, then the proteins were separate, where we need to still work out the bisestronic messages or other ways of getting this to go. This is where the really smart people are working, and I have hope that we will see a proliferation of better immunogens to induce better immune responses. And the VTN is getting ready for all these, in part by saying we need to clear space to make all this happen because some of the ideas we were testing are no longer valid. Moving on, talk a little bit about treatment. You mentioned that for many people, one pill a day with a combination of integrase is doing very well at keeping people healthy long-term. What, what do you see the agenda for the therapeutic networks going forward now in terms of ongoing needs for HIV research? I, I think there's two parts to that. One, the Achilles heel of both um, chemoprophylaxis and HIV therapeutics remains adherence. And so what we need to do is really continue to build toward easier to tolerate regimens for, that are oral, and we could go oral weekly, oral monthly, we could go injectable for treatment. All of those change the dynamic on the landscape of the adherence question. And there's also a two drug injectables now that you have to have an injection once a month. So the goal would be to just continue to make improvements. So if we can go one once a month 
Can we reduce the volume and get us to once every three months or once every four months and ultimately to maybe once every half year? But again, with a significantly reduced volume. I, I think the innovation is there. We're gonna need additional rounds of drug discovery to get better molecules. And it just, we, we have to really keep pushing uh, that agenda of making it so that we have medicines and prevention strategies that are really approachable for people to want to take and use. You mentioned the, one of the Achilles heels being adherence. The other obviously is the rebound in viremia that occurs when people stop their current suppressive yes. therapy. So there's a yeah. lot of excitement around cure research, but. I would say that on the therapeutic side, that is the other half of the research agenda for, the, for therapeutics is really helping us to figure out what we can do in the cure space. And there's some tantalizing new leads coming out of the Esperanza patient and other strategies based on immunization and some interesting animal studies where you have monoclonal antibodies plus a T-cell-based vaccine, you can lower the amount of monoclonal antibodies that are required to give you significant protection. And that's the kind of thing we really need to understand the biology of there between interaction between broad neutralizing antibodies and uh, a potent CD8 response, for example. The way I think about this, Jeff, is that we have two significant challenges left in HIV research. It, these are not new. We need to be able to affect sustained remission in terms of working toward a cure, and we need a safe, effective, and durable HIV vaccine. Coronavirus may help us with both through the use of messenger RNA technology, and also understanding the immune response and how the immune response ages in people. What is it when you get to be 65 and you're suddenly hyper susceptible to coronavirus disease, but you have no other constitutional symptoms other than you get really sick? So what is that defect? And is, is there a lesson there that we need to know about in order to help us address HIV immunology? you mentioned aging at over 65, that's obviously with half the population in the U.S., I think, being over 50 now. And this is still a high priority issue for the community addressing the premature aging that we still see in people living with HIV. In talking with the ACTG, we continue to try to broker talks through the OAR with the institutes that have aging in their remit so that we can get an integrated quality research agenda moving on this. I, I think coronavirus slowed us down a little bit in that space. And I think we're going to have to uh, come back and redouble our efforts. But really, it's about helping the HIV research community to come together to address the, the most important unmet medical needs of the people living with HIV. It's really the, the right thing to do. And continued advocacy on this front to the OAR and to the Aging Institute and others is going to be extremely important. Why don't we pivot a little bit and talk about prevention modalities? We just saw long-acting cabritegravir approved in, in the United States based on the two pivotal studies the HPT ended. Where are we going with prevention research then with cabritegravir available now? I think that we are now in a phase of trying to come up with longer-acting molecules that could go three months to six months smaller volumes. Again, continuing on the theme of choice. 
what can we do to complete the stockpile so that there's choice for all people and the and choices that would then fit within their lives. And so I think that as we diversify, we will continue to look and see what's available. The challenge we face going forward, and I think a lesson that we learned a hard way, is when we get to a certain point in the development path, there has to be a pharma partner. It's, it's not practical or reasonable to ask the government or NGOs or anybody else to be fully responsible for the development of, of a product that is going to require investment in production and those kinds of things. So I think we're going to be clearer about that moving forward. We'll continue to entertain concepts, but at some point, it's up to the, the sponsor, I would say the advocate for a given prevention strategy to generate the data that's compelling enough that a company wants to invest. Because we can't take everything all the way through. That's not our mission or our job. Uh, on the vaccine front, it's the same thing. You can build all these nice vaccines, but at some point you're gonna need a company to come in and make whatever the new vaccine is. So it's equal opportunity pressure across the field on everybody that you have to generate the data that is compelling to get us out of the phase one, two slot and into advanced development. And then along those lines, the other interesting products now in the multi-purpose technology field are compounds, topical local compounds that may have anti-STI activity, anti-HIV activity, contraceptive potential. Do you see any pharma partners involved for those kind of technologies going forward? They're going to need that because at some point, you know, they're going to have a concept and USAID can only take it so far. The division will only take it so far there's gonna to have to be somebody to step up and make uh, these. I think we have to be smart about which STIs we're including and how we go about this and safety first and make sure that we truly are building something that young women and young men wanna use as we move forward in, in this space. And coming back to COVID briefly here, the COVID Prevention Trials Network did an incredible job of enrolling 45,000, 30,000 people trials in a period of a couple of months. It's astonishing compared to what we've done in HIV prevention trials historically. So what do you see the future of that prevention network at this point going forward? Now that the main Operation Warp Speed trials are all finished. The trials, whether it's the Moderna trial, J&J, Novavax, Sanofi, even AstraZeneca, the agreement with the agency was that we would have two years of follow-up. And for some of these vaccines, it's really critical. For example, Moderna, as part of the ongoing phase three, they're boosting all of the participants. And then we can get Sarah and look at the longevity of the third shot in the boost in a really well-characterized cohort. That's essential data um, that we'll need to continue to generate. But beyond that, um, what is the unmet scientific need or the question that uh, requires such a massive infrastructure? So I think what will happen is we will zero in on some important concepts in terms of pan-coronavirus vaccines or other strategies that will help us get prepared for the next pandemic. At the same time, 
the entire nation, and this is a, a wish for all of us, that we will move out of pandemic response mode, which we are up to our eyeballs in right now, to pandemic preparedness. And then we're working in seven virus families, um, making new immunogens, being prepared for where the next pandemic can come from. But at some point, we don't need to recruit 45,000. In some ways, this goes back to the IDCRC and DMID to run those phase one, phase two trials. They've been doing all the heterologous boosts and doing an outstanding job of it. And what we will do, if you think of this as we've been fighting a conflagration, park the fire truck back in their firehouse. But that means now that then the VTN and the PTN will have headspace to go out and test new HIV vaccines and help us to really come back to that, to our core mission. The other issue right now is frankly money. None of the funds that we have received for coronavirus came through the standard NIH budget appropriation process. These were all extra funds that were designated for this emergency. And the the money was multi-year money and had no permanent tails. Usually when we get an appropriation or an increase, It goes in your budget, it goes in your base, and you have that money to spend year by year because you have the same amount next year and the next year and the next year. That's not the way this has been done. So it's not like the billions of dollars we received have any sort of tail on it. They just are, and they're almost all spent out right now. One one last question then before asking if you have any final messages is we we have the ongoing and the HIV epidemic effort in the United States. I know the CFAWs are playing a significant part in that. Do you see the networks involved in, in that effort as well? It's an interesting question. So I think the first real foray into EHE adjacent work will be 096, the study that the PTN is doing a pilot for right now. I think the issue is how do we support cutting edge work in the context of something that is not supposed to be research-based. We're supposed to implement the EHE activity is largely an implementation program. So where's our sweet spot for research? Is it a scaling issue? Is it a solving some of the behavioral and social science issues around reaching populations the way 096 is focused? And we're going to continue to try to build out from one-year supplements for CFARs to research that is more investigator-initiated and investigator-driven, but still having the requirements of linking the research to the public health departments and to community, because it's that partnership between researchers, the local public health offices and people, and the community that probably knows better than anybody what research should be done. So that's the magic that I think we're going to have to try to make the transition to. It can't not just be CFARs, although CFARs have done a really good job. But again, the funding will have to follow suit. Great. Well, we really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to the HSUMIN audience. And any final words or concluding remarks that you want to share with our folks, with our audience? So a couple of things about the pandemic that we have not had a chance to touch on, I want to point out that I'm really proud of, and that is the way the activist community and the the people at the sites who represent community 
have stepped up on the COVID side to help us with equity and inclusion and really help us to understand how to reach community. The SEAL program, the work that was done out of the hutch to be part of reaching the study participants we needed to recruit in order to have the the patient population we're recruiting reflect who's actually getting sick in the epidemic. And, And then being able to have the strength of character to insist that the the studies recruited um, a significant proportion of black and brown people. It's really critical. And as we go forward, we need to continue to build on that approach that collaboration with community starts before you start your research. You start with questions. What is your unmet medical need? Where can we have an impact? What, what is it that needs to be done? And I think HIV does it better than anybody. I think back to the interactions we had with the CRAG and the ability to start building community into TB and TB research. I think that that's where we have set the, the standard and the model, and we just need to continue with that. And so I'm excited about our future. I think that we will get back to some semblance of normal. I don't know if it's going to be in time for all all to meet at CROI, but there still is hope. But we have to get to a point where we put this one behind us. But at that point, we can't just say, that's done, let's move on. We have to really learn and apply what we've done to pandemic preparedness. And that will be in part scientific, but also political, because we're going to need uh, the support from the appropriators. And if they choose not to, then we're bound to repeat these same mistakes. And that would just be tragic. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. And we look forward to the the next six years of the current cycle of the networks and much more productivity coming out on a therapeutic and prevention landscape here in HIV research. Pleasure to join you today and happy holidays, everyone. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Dr. Diefenbach. We hope to have you back again in another episode of the Asia for Human. And to our audience, we wish you an excellent year ahead and look forward to meeting you on future episodes of the Ages for Human. Do not forget to subscribe, share this podcast with your acquaintances, friends, and colleagues. Please leave your comments with suggestions for future episodes of the Ages for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. And until next month.